0: Welcome to a brand new episode of the Michelle Tafoya podcast. Elon Musk said, what? GFY? It was a big old GFY. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what he said. If you don't know, you've got to stay tuned. Mike Benz has a response. He is knowledgeable about all things cyber, you know, online censorship, all the rest. This guy's pretty brilliant. You're going to want to hear it, and you're going to want to hear Elon Musk say it. We'll play it for you next.
1: It's time for the Michelle Tafoya podcast.
0: Let's welcome Mike Benz. You can find him at Mike Benz, B-E-N-Z, cyber, all one term on X, where you were last night uh, pontificating, just giving this great response to Elon Musk, which we'll get to in a minute. Mike I want our audience to understand your background, precisely from from your point of view, because you do comment on all things cyber. Give us a little sense of what your professional background has looked like.
1: Sure. So I started off as a corporate attorney, mostly representing technology firms and uh, and finance, and then I moved into government during the Trump administration. Uh, I was a speechwriter for Secretary. Uh, Dr. Ben Carson at HUD, and I advised on economic policy there. Uh, I was called up to the White House to be a speechwriter for President Donald Trump. Uh, and then from there, I, my portfolio on that, on the, on the comm side, was talking about foreign policy, national security, and technology. And I worked very closely with the uh, uh, the NSC folks there, the National Security Council folks. And I've I, I been very attuned to issues of internet censorship for Several years before that, it had been something I was writing a book on and was doing a documentary on and it, is, it sort of consumed uh, everything around my my life for the years, both as an attorney and uh, and working for the Trump administration. And then uh, an opportunity opened up to join the State Department from the White House and be essentially in, in the diplomat role, um, uh, ne- formulating and negotiating U.S. foreign policy on on Internet issues. Uh, which basically has its own department within the Economic Bureau. And so I sort of saw up close and personal on uh, you know, inside, outside and sideways, all forms of relationships between the government and the private sector when it comes to control over, over speech on the Internet. And so when my time in government ended, I created the foundation I now run, which is Foundation for Freedom
0: Online. You can find it, foundationforfreedomonline.com, and you should check it out. It's, it's amazing. Now, I, people are automatically going to say, Mike Benz, you worked for Trump. I, I'm, I'm tuning out because, you know, there are the, the never-Trumpers, the, the people who think that anyone associated with Trump must be bad. To them, you say what, Mike?
1: Oh, This is so much bigger than Trump. I mean, you're, you're talking about something that is completely existential to the soul of Western civilization, the right to open your mouth and to let you know sounds come out of your vocal cords i mean that's basically what this is what this is about and the thing that has differentiated this country from every other country on the planet uh our first amendment uh is under a crisis renegotiation right now and i should say i i don't consider this to be a partisan thing at all uh you know the the story that i i try to tell people here and try to try to install in people's brains is that the this is a the story of internet censorship is not a story of republican versus democrat it's not a story of conservative versus liberal it's a story of the foreign policy establishment against domestic populism that is that is people whose people and in institutions whose interests are in the broader american empire versus those who live in the american homeland and for this reason the censorship industry is actually targeted left-wing anti-war anti-nato uh and foreign policy heterodox voices not as much as right-wing voices but that's only because they haven't achieved the same level of political power if bernie sanders had won the 2016 election i mean you saw what they did to him when he even floated the idea of running against joe biden in in the 2020 election they they tried to rush a gate thing on him but they did the same thing to jeremy corbyn in the uk labor party left um, it, it's really not about left or right. It's really about money, frankly, for to these people. And whoever gets in the way of that as, a, as an organized political movement will be targeted by the state.
0: Well, when we talk about money and we talk about power, it, there's no better figure to focus on than Elon Musk. He has a lot of money. And therefore, he has a good amount of power. And he's using it in a way that is really fascinating to me. And he's become a polarizing figure because of it. Now, yesterday um, he was being interviewed and the, the one of the most epic things I've ever seen. And it's, again, I think it's polarizing, but he had been accused of saying something or agreeing with something that many people thought was anti-Semitic. Then he made a trip to Israel. People suggested that was an apology tour. And now he's seeing places like Disney uh, boycott X and say, we're not we're not going to advertise on X. We're... Sus- you know, we're um, stopping that for a time at least. And so he was asked about this yesterday. We're going to play this audio. We had to bleep it, uh, but we're going to play it and we're going to get your response because online last night you gave something like a little mini masterclass on this. So let's play this this soundbite that has been, I know, played umpteen times today, but let's play it umpteen and one. If, if somebody's going to try to
1: blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f- yourself.
0: Go f- yourself. <laughs> is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience, a little hey to uh, Bob Iger, uh, the CEO of Disney. Uh, if you're in the audience, it was. Um, I mean, talk about. Sorry for this, fans. Talk about balls. Talk about cojones. I, I don't care if you find that distasteful. It's it's what it was. <laughs> so. Why, Elon also said, you know, if you boycott, you're going to kill my company, but go ahead and bring it on. What is he trying to achieve right now?
1: Well, the company is stuck between a rock and a hard place when it comes to having to deal with the weaponized economics of sort of political boycott campaigns versus the principle of free speech. And this has been something that has been the Achilles heel of protection, protection of freedom of speech online for at least six or seven years now. This is, you know, there's a there's a long history of ad boycotts being used to uh, to change the terms of service policies of speech platforms to kill populist political sentiment or citizen uh, citizen opposition to government initiatives. So, you know, some of this goes back to, you know, as soon as Trump was elected in 2016, very quickly after that, um, actually immediately uh, after that, in January uh, 2017, this is two weeks before Trump was actually inaugurated. So he had won, but he was, had not yet been sworn into office. David Brock, who's the head, the head of Media Matters, founder of it, um, he organized about 120 tech titans and investors um, from uh, affiliated with the DNC to come up with a plan to force social media companies to censor. Uh, at the time, it was just pro-Trump voices online because David Brock, he's got this long history as a political hitman in Washington. He started off as a conservative, sort of you know, uh, hitman operative, and then he migrated over to the Hillary Clinton side. And they, made a, they did an autopsy of the 2016 election about why they lost. And they said, how did we lose this? Trump didn't get a single newspaper mainstream media endorsement. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a, uh, the the media coverage was 95 to 5 against him. Even Fox News, which is the typical Republican home base, was highly torn. It didn't have laudatory coverage of him. How do we lose to this guy? And David Brock did this assessment because he had run a super PAC trying to artificially inflate Hillary Clinton's popularity online, only to find it got crushed by just organic sentiment, often even from anonymous accounts. Uh, online. And the assessment was, this was an internet election and we lost because of free speech on the internet. And if we're ever going to win elections again, we need to control populist impulses online. And they came up with a plan around importing this ad boycotting strategy that they had used against Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly in the analog TV era. And then they, they brought some hitchhikers along from the Pentagon and the State Department and the CIA and the National Endowment for Democracy. The national security state had a vested interest in getting rid of Trumpism. Now, it's, again, I, I call it Trumpism here, but this is a bipartisan, nonpartisan thing. Bernie Sanders wanted to scale back NATO, wanted to cut back on defense spending to pay for universal health care and, and universal uh, free college. That's why they hated Bernie Sanders. Again, the same thing when it comes to the, the populist right and left in Europe. NATO was terrified at the time that after Brexit, which was sort of fueled by this populist energy, Frexit was going to happen in France, France was going to break out of the EU, and Italy exit in Italy, and Grexit in Germany, and Grexit in Greece, and Spexit in Spain. The whole EU was going to come apart. That meant meant NATO was going to come apart. That meant there would be no enforcement for the tens of billions of dollars of debt the IMF is the creditor for. The whole rules-based international order would collapse if people were free to post (laughs) their opinions online. So it became a national security issue to censor the Internet in the eyes of these longtime apex predators of the national security state. And they teamed up with the Media Matters crew from the DNC and with the sort of Michael V. Hayden, uh, John McCain, Dick Cheney uh, sort of neocon right to create this uniparty blob censorship apparatus that was mostly designed to kill ad revenue because the Chamber of Commerce, which you know represents basically all of our blue chip multinational companies depends on the battering ram of the Pentagon and the State Department and the CIA and all the N- the the NGO swarm that 's pumped up by our government to secure and protect their foreign investments that 's the reason that we that we have such global dominance it 's not just because you know, we provide the best products it 's because we ensure foreign governments don 't aren't able to prop up their own that they're not nationalistic nationalistic to box out our own companies this is one of the failures that they perceive in China that China did create that firewall the government protects our businesses abroad so our businesses are dependent on the government so you so when government or when government operatives political operatives can weaponize government support to say hey company don't don't advertise on this platform because they're promoting disinformation, whatever the predicate of the day is, but it's just a proxy for they're allowing the free speech of political opposition parties that we oppose. They have a tremendous amount of leverage to do that. And they did that early on. I mean, really right out the gate after the Trump election. And so just to tie it all together, Musk's, you know, GFY statement there is really the first time in the, in the seven-year crusade that these people have been on, that someone has said straight to their face, no... Friggin' way. The buck stops here. You're going to have to kill me.
0: Well, so might they be able to kill
1: X? They might. They might. There's a lot of questions about what happens in the event that the company is driven into bankruptcy. I don't think that that's an immediate term thing. Uh, It's more of a medium term thing. Uh, But the fact is, is that at the end of the day, there is the reality of, of the economics of it. Now, the way Musk phrased it was very interesting. He basically proposed it to be a public trial trial in front of earth. You know, he, yes, he said, yes. yeah, Earth. <laughs> he used that term. Judge. Let's
0: see how earth reacts. Right. You know, we'll see what earth does. And it was, it was, I I will say to you, he fascinates me because he's a little bit strange, right? He doesn't, he, all of this was so, um, it seemed like it, he was just bringing on self, like just, yeah, go ahead and kill my company. We'll see what happens next. And But it was amazing. And then this morning I wake up to uh, Jerry Baker, Gerard Baker, of the Wall Street Journal, talking about this global movement toward populist uh, politicians that people are really tired and really wearing down from elites telling them what to do, how to do it, what's best for them, et cetera. And so before we go too much further into Elon, I also want to get your take on Ireland. Ireland is proposing these Hate speech laws that um, may take away your freedoms for the common good. This, to me, is absolutely terrifying. So you can't have a meme on your phone that is considered, and, and, the, and the outline of this law is so vague and so general that any judge who wanted to could say, uh, Mr. Benz, I don't like that, that meme that someone noticed on your phone. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you in jail for a few weeks or whatever. I'm I'm just throwing that out there. What do you understand to be going on in Ireland, and will the Irish stand up? W- will they stand up to it?
1: There's a lot going on here. So just I mean, is is a first matter, and it, and it pains me to say this, but it's just a reality that people need to face. There is already a variant of that phenomenon of criminalized possession of memes on your phone here. In, in the in the U.S. Uh, and let me explain what I mean by that. While possession of a subversive meme, a funny meme that you got off Twitter or some board online, is not a criminal offense, that is, you can't be indicted for it in the U.S. Uh, uh, starting around five six years ago, prosecutors began to use the memes on your phones to 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 prove criminal intent. So. While you can't be indicted for possession of memes, you can be convicted for them in the U.S. Let me so, and, and there are many, many high-profile cases of this. Um, there was, if you remember the, there was this Charlottesville event in August 2017. It was highly, you know, it was it was a big, you know, deal. It was a big, you know, sort of controversy and a lot of you know unsightly aesthetics and a lot of fallout for for both the the Trump presidency and then at the cultural level. Um, But, you know, in order to prove the the criminal intent, if you remember, there was a fatality at the end of that event where uh, this this fellow, James Fields, I think was his name, was convicted for something like 400 years for for hitting this this woman with this with his car. Um, They proved criminal intent by going through his phone and and and. And again, he hadn't posted these on social media. These were just possessed on his phone. And the prosecutors used that to say, oh, well, then he hates these people because he has these memes that suggest this. The same thing was done in the the Doug Mackey case when they took his phone. The same thing has been done to January 6th defendants. It has now become a stock tool of trade for prosecutors to go through your phone when they arrest you for unposted. That is, you don't need to post them on social media. You might be downloading them because you're a cultural anthropologist. you know, there mm-hmm. People download memes even from things they don't agree with or from, if you're on the right, you might download a left-wing meme that you just think is sort of funny or you want to understand it more. You think it's going to be deleted later. So you just archive it. Your possession of that is now going to be put on trial if you are ever convicted of a crime, if you're ever Okay, indicted that's crazy.
0: Before. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, but, that's, but it's gone unchallenged. I mean, this is I mean, our Justice Department is completely out of control. I mean, they've got multiple indictments against. I mean, if you think about all of the different centuries of precedent they've overturned just in the past several years, we've had presidents assassinated. We've never had a president indicted before. And this Justice Department passed two separate indictments, uh, you know, four in total, if you include the states, against against not only the most recent president, but the guy who's winning currently in the polls for the presidency. You know, uh, himself, if, if, if another regime had done that to an opposition candidate abroad, the State Department would pass sanctions on them um, for, for human rights violations and wouldn't, wouldn't even accept the validity of an election if, the, if a prosecutor determined it rather than, the, rather than the, the, the voters. So you have this situation now where this Justice Department has, has no oversight. There's, there's no penalties for them. They just got refunded. I mean, it would have been very easy for the House Appropriations Committee to just strike all their funding. Prosecutors don't make a paycheck. Try it now. But Republicans are torn in this civil war and you know between the sort of foreign policy military energy complex, the Chamber of Commerce folks, and the sort of domestic populist folks around the MAGA coalition. And their inability to resolve that civil war has has essentially created a winning coalition between Democrats and foreign policy Republicans to make sure that the populist conservatives can't get anything done, can't defund anything, et cetera. So that's basically where we are right now. And so now it falls to the private sector to protect us, like elon musk and uh, and he 's right now putting the whole team on his back. One last thing about this Ireland thing there was an incredible clip that that was uh, posted yesterday online of the the uh, Irish Parliament where they were going through the social media platform responses to the irish the, the Ireland uh, Police Intelligence Agency working with the social media companies, and they aired in their own parliament how X was the only non-cooperative platform in terms of taking down uh, speech from the native Irish uh, a- around these these riots, and they were maddened that X had broken, you know, this silicon curtain. And uh, so it's just one more thing where Musk is really proving himself to be a great man of history.
0: It's 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 fascinating. He has drawn the ire of many. Uh, what to. Can you put yourself in the shoes of the people who feel very threatened by Musk, who don't like his stance? I mean, you know, we've got this nut job Keith Olbermann who used to be a sportscaster and I'm sure people think I'm a nut job who used to be a sportscaster. Fine. You can think whatever you want, but you know, Elon, he's, he, Keith Olbermann has changed his avatar to say F Elon or F Musk or whatever it says. It, so there is a definite hatred of Musk from some corners when, can you put yourself in their shoes and explain to us why they hate him?
1: Yeah. I mean, they had total control the, the, this time last year, essentially Um, the, the, you know, I just referred to something that I call the Silicon curtain. It's basically the West version of the iron curtain that descended. If, you know, there was this sort of perception in the West that once you got you know, once you got east of 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 West Germany, uh, there was no media that could penetrate. You know, the 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 Soviet Union. There was they were essentially under this dark cloud, this this curtain uh, that that prevented their ability to learn about the outside world. Now, the same thing has been true of social media from twenty eighteen to twenty twenty uh, two. Twenty eighteen was basically. I, I only say that because that's sort of the year that the consensus-building censorship architecture that was, was consensus-built from 2016, 2017, really started getting installed in 2018. And every single tech platform moved in lockstep because they were all afraid their companies were going to get killed in the same way that Elon Musk articulated last night, which is to say that Jack Dorsey said after he banned Trump that he felt very queasy about doing it, but he had to do it at the end of the day because it was a business decision. That is, it wasn't. It wasn't the principle. It was the profit which dictated it. Which were which so is, or, he, he which,
0: was pressured to do that. It wasn't necessarily. I'm. I wake up one day and I have this this epiphany that I really need to ban Trump. It was. The, it was the pressure.
1: It was the pressure. It was the pressure from advertisers. It was the pressure from governments. It was the pressure from all, all the all the all the commercial interlinkages and partnerships that all become levers that can be wielded when you have an organized campaign to 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 crush a commercial institution. Now, this is something that, you, you know, has, has always, at the end of the day, and Mark Zuckerberg felt the same way, by the way. He gave a speech in 2019, I talk about, where this is 2019, and he gave a speech talking about how he thought censorship had gone too far. And then he got, he lost, uh, Meta lost $60 billion, billion billion with a B, in a, in a uh, ad boycott campaign called Change the Terms which was a economic coercion campaign to get Facebook to change its terms of service to essentially ban all manifestation of Trump supporters. If you, if you argued against an open border, you were said to be an immigration extremist or a racist. You know, they basically had all these things that, that, that forced all forms of proxy Trump support to be a de facto terms of service violation on the platform via this ad, this ad boycott campaign. And even though, you know, Zuck put on this, this big bravado about, you know, oh, it's, we've been getting too much pressure between 2018, and 2019. I'm really not comfortable with it. Then when they really drove the screws in, he drifted off into VR land, handed it all off to his lieutenants and folded like a lawn chair. And you've seen this time and again at Twitter, at Meta, um, at, at all sorts of, of institutions like Amazon, Twitch, Discord, um, I would say Google is the only one who sort of did it gleefully. Uh, they were sort of on board from moment one. There's sort of a special case, but, um, but for the, you know, for the, for the most part, nobody has wanted to do what they've been forced to do by these coercion campaigns. I don't, the brands don't even want to do it. Brands want to only do advertising. If they get positive ROI, they don't want to lose money. They don't want to lose money by not being able to advertise on something, but, but it, it is a business decision for them, too, because anyone who keeps an ad going on X is going to have the screws stuck to them through this you know, Media Matters network, through the ADL network, through the Pentagon and State Department-funded NGOs, you know, through, through all the little political interstitial operatives. So, so they, they kill you with six degrees of Kevin Bacon. You know anybody who's a degree until you're all the way removed that you're not even touching the thing with a 10-foot pole um that's wh- where they try to move these brands to and it's become a very organized thing because a lot of this is centralized through groups like the world economic forum and through Ugh. groups like the chamber of commerce these consensus building things where all the brands are sort of you know they're sort of segmented into pools and then basically you just have one one pool manager you need to get on board for for how all these these ads are pulled together and everything starts getting bundled and then suddenly it's very easy to pull these boycotts off. And, you know, if, if the platform dies, first of all, there's so much historical capital built up on it. It's hard to imagine, even if the company goes bankrupt, that it will be, um, it will be dead. So to speak, there's lots of investors who would want to swoop in and capitalize it at a very cheap cost. If it comes to that, and frankly, Twitter still plays an incredibly, uh, important role for our national security state for influence operations abroad. They don't want to lose that and have, you know, Weibo or TikTok become all that much more powerful. Twitter is you know, the, the Arab Spring happened. You know, the, uh, Obama toppled multiple foreign governments, uh, Egypt, Tunisia, um, you know, th- through, through Twitter and Facebook revolutions. They, they don't want the platform to die. They want it to be regime changed.
0: Well, Okay. So they may accomplish that. This is, uh, this stuff is, is, is scary. And some people think it's all conspiratorial, you know, conspiracy theory. Um, I, the more I learn, the more I realize it's not. And you've had some, the Matt Taibis of the world, guys who were generally sort of left of center, who have come around to look at this through the lens of truth, right? Barry Weiss, same thing. And have said, and have decided this is, very much uh, an active sort of campaign starting that is, that is being handled or being conducted by the government. Forgive my tripping on the words, but it's uh, uh, what's going to convince the average Joe, or do you think the average Joe already knows this?
1: They're getting it. It's a huge thing to take in. Um, it's completely incontrovertible. These people brag about it on tape. They need to, to get government funding. You know, I mean, one of the things my foundation documented earlier this year was over a hundred million dollars of government funding to censorship uh, programs and censorship institutions to 60 different U.S. new censorship centers set up within the universities to these uh, to these NGOs and nonprofits. They call them civil society institutions. They create predicates around protecting democracy, but then they define democracy as as meaning, uh, you know, a consensus of the institutions. Rather than a consensus of the individuals, so if the right. individuals decide, you know, uh, democratically that they want to vote for a certain person, they want a certain, uh, you know, referendum policy, or they think a certain thing on climate or immigration or abortion. Well, if the institution, if if that individual consensus goes against the institutional consensus from the Pentagon, the State Department, NATO, the IMF, and the Chamber of Commerce, then it's an attack on democracy to be, you know, a, a, a civilian going against. Uh, essentially this you know th- this government apparatus uh, so you know they've they've built this censorship mercenary army uh, in the in the private sector and in the, and in the civil society institutions, but they have a they have a formal name for it you don 't need to call it a conspiracy they they call it the whole of society counter disinformation framework the, the whole of society refers to four categories of institutions that are all joined together in a cooperative censorship network, and those are government institutions. Private sector institutions, civil society institutions, and media and fact checking organizations and they they have all this stuff drawn up in in charts I mean the dhs was 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 spreading the gospel on the whole of society uh, countermis and disinformation network as, as early as as two thousand and nineteen they, uh, they, they metastasized this cancer throughout the federal government to now where basically every federal agency does its part, whether that's through censorship funding, whether that's through censorship policy coordination, censorship outsourcing, uh, or censorship direct pressure, like the FBI was doing, to all lend their own government assets in whatever form they can. The National Science Foundation does a lot of funding, the FBI does a lot of pressure, DHS does a lot of coordination, the Pentagon does a lot of outsourcing, State Department does a lot of outsourcing. They're they're all When i say they're all in it together this isn't this isn't me saying this this is they literally organized what they called a whole of society framework to onboard the blue chip companies to onboard for-profit censorship mercenary firms to onboard u.s universities to do you know misinformation research and and mass flagging campaigns they fund the fact-checking orgs pointer the largest fact-checking group in the entire universe um got something like i think 25 uh, state department grants in the last year they're an instrument of statecraft to be able to rig the information ecosystems in countries around the world so the state department can rig elections in favor of us-backed candidates now i don't have a problem with that abroad necessarily as long as it doesn't come home It's sort of like the cia we've created it as this attack dog you know to uh to overthrow governments and rig media and do all sorts of department of dirty trick stuff but the catch was it was never supposed to be it was like having a rottweiler out outside your home you know you don't invite it to the dinner table to eat with you and now they've they've sicked this all on us
0: it's 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 astonishing it's enlightening and it's a little scary i think there's so many things to be worried about right now but i think that the one maybe i worry about the most is is freedom of speech the first amendment it seems to be under unprecedented attack. Before I I let you go, I try to ask my guests something to give us some some hope to cling on to. And I don't want it to be false. I don't want it to be, oh, let's see, I've really got to reach for this. What gives you hope? I mean, obviously you are vested, you are invested in this, you've founded this organization, so you believe you can make a difference. Um, but what gives you hope about turning this tide?
1: I've never been more optimistic. Actually, now th- this may sound strange, given what I've what I've said in, in the lead up to this question. Um, and part of this is, you know, I've been through my five stages of grief on, on this, and I think everybody who goes through the literature, or the source documents, or the, or the story that that my foundation is, you know, trying to, trying to spread, and, and others are are picking up. Um, you know, you go through the, you know, the denial, and then the anger, and then the bargaining, and then the depression, and then the acceptance. You go through that five stages of grief cycle many times over the course of a a sort of education about the structures that determine our world. Um, But we have, from 2018 to 2022, there was no hope at all. Not a single, you couldn't penetrate the C-suite of a single um, US major tech platform. The, the, uh, even Republicans were completely asleep at the wheel. I was screaming my bloody head off for years within the, within the, the, the administration, within the government, I was writing speeches on, on internet censorship only to have, you know, them basically, you know, mostly disregarded because no one would believe it. Um, it was, uh, right now you, so there was a helplessness for five or six years where there was nothing that looked like it could be done at the government side. There was nothing that looked like it could be done at the tech side. Media weren't picking up. No one really understood the story. Now, All of that is changing. There is a multi-front counteroffensive that is spectacular to witness right now. First of all, as we speak, uh, oral arguments are underway for a Supreme Court case that might actually ban all government um, coordination of censorship policies with the tech sector. It's called Missouri v. Biden. It's the biggest free speech case our country has ever seen in 50 years. Uh, and, And on trial is the government's right to censor. Uh, if we get a positive Supreme Court ruling there, we might not even need um, heroic action from Elon Musk on, on certain fronts or heroic action from uh, from Republicans in, in Congress to, you know, to sort of create the coalition necessary to take this on. We might get a judicial victory. I'm not I'm not saying that that's that's the case or express But we do have a conservative majority on there. And there's certainly some justices like Clarence Thomas. Um, who are going to have been, I think be extremely fired up about about the evidence in this case? So we we've got a tremendous amount of momentum on the legal front. We've got momentum on the on the legislative front. Just today, there is a congressional hearing from Jim Jordan's weaponization subcommittee on the censorship industrial complex, where where uh, Schellenberger and Taibbi are both testifying. This is now the seventh uh, uh, I think uh, seventh or eighth hearing just in the past twelve months. On Censorship industry dynamics between the Oversight Committee, the Judiciary Committee, the Weaponization Committee, and the Homeland Security Committee. So there are uh, these, a lot of the, the most nefarious censorship industry operatives have been hauled in for transcribed interviews or have been subpoenaed. There's pressure on them. The Washington Post has been complaining. Newsweek has been complaining. Scientific American has been complaining that these, these censorship institutions that a year ago bragged they were too big to fail. My foundation wrote a report, as Harvard did a report in 2022, where they claimed that, that the field of disinformation is now too big to fail because it's so well supported by government. One year later, there was a Washington Post headline which said these institutions are now crumbling. Now, this doesn't mean they won't make a rebound, but so on, on the media front, these stories now have a level of virality to them because the baseline consciousness has been raised, and they make a big, big impact. Not, not, this whole thing has relied on operating in the dark. And trying to cloak itself in norms and and standards that we would accept but we don't accept them because these these jargon words were invented to try to cloak what they're doing and that cloak is being pulled back and they know it so they're on the run on the media side they're on the run on the on the law side they're on the run at the legislative side and who knows what happens in 2024 um you know it to have the the person most targeted by this being up in the polls in five of the six battleground states according to a washington post new york times poll um makes it heightens the contradictions there is there is a necessary trade-off between legitimacy and control they're going all the way towards control and more and more people joe rogan is now talking you know like a like a populist elon musk is talking like a populist we never had this kind of support a couple years ago and so that's why i'm more optimistic
0: than ever I think uh, in spite of someone on some uh, congressional committee calling Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger so-called journalists, that's what they try to do to diminish you, the people in power who are sitting up in their mighty thrones say, these so-called journalists. Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, Barry Weiss... I believe are three of the most pivotal characters in this whole thing right now. I would put you among them. I want people to go to your website. Um, and again, I'm looking for freedom for, give it to me. Cause I'm foundation for
1: freedom. Yep. Foundation for freedom com.
0: Foundation for freedom online.com. Uh, check it out. I mean, it's just just so 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 important, and I'm not going to stop talking about it. And I know you won't either. And I hope we can do this again next time. Elon drops some sort of f bomb somewhere. We'll have to we'll have to revisit because you have <laughs> so won't much have to great wait long for that. Probably won't have to wait long. You're right. Um, thank you for taking the time. You guys can't recommend this enough. Go to his website. Go to his Twitter page. Uh, if find out what's going on. Open your eyes and your ears and your mind a little bit to what is happening because it is uh, it's it's scary but i i love hearing that that you're optimistic so with that in mind i always finish every episode saying be brave and do good just do a little bit of good up your courage one degree today and uh, stand with what's right and we'll see you next time